Good morning, church. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not, into, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, good morning, and let me add my greeting to my brothers Scott and Phil today. It's good to be with you. We're going to be in that passage. Please do have it open, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a look at that together. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, your word is like great treasure. Please fill us with joy this morning as we carefully uncover it to expose its great worth. May we truly rejoice at what we find as your Holy Spirit reveals it to us, even the depths of God. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I'd like you to think for a moment about the person sitting next to you today. Cue awkward sideways glances. Uh, you might know them very well, you might know them very little. You might be thinking to yourself at this point, I think their name's Jonathan. Uh, actually, incidentally, Jonathan's a very good guess. Uh, there's a lot of guys named Jonathan in our church for some reason, so you're bound to hit one sooner or later. Here's a question, though. What is their physical and spiritual well-being worth to you? And I, and I mean actually in material terms. In other words, what material cost would you be willing to bear for the sake of 
whatever needs they have because of the love that you share in Christ. If it costs two cups of coffee in a couple of hours, would that be too much? If it took setting an extra place at the dinner table or making up an extra bed maybe, would we open our homes to one another? If it took a a few extra kilometers and some petrol and a spare seat in the car to get them to church or to midweek Bible study, would we go out of our way? If it meant taking what we would have spent on the annual family holiday and giving it to someone else so they could get the physical and spiritual refreshment they clearly need, would we be willing to do that? What if it took visiting them in hospital? Uh, If you noticed that they were missing from church next week, would you text them? For the person sitting next to you or near you today, your brother and sister in Christ, what is their well-being worth to you because of the love you share in Jesus? Well, in the days of the early church, after Jesus ascended to heaven and the gospel began to go out to the ends of the earth, the surrounding society was quite frankly astonished at the costly ways that the early Christians loved one another, the way they cared for one another. It was something that gave immense credibility and immense integrity to this strange new gospel they were claiming. And of course, this sort of costly care does happen among our church family. I mean, our family's been sick all this last week, and we've been incredibly blessed and overwhelmed by the love that's been shown to us in very costly ways. But the experience of the early church suggests that this kind of costly care is not exclusive to certain personalities or to certain means or certain capacities, certain bank balances. The Bible actually suggests it's a church-wide attitude of selfless service and costly care for one another because of Jesus. Now, this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look under the hood Uh, to discover why the early church as a body was willing to spend themselves for one another in such amazing ways. Now, we're in the letter of 2 Corinthians this morning. It comes after 1 Corinthians, if you're looking for it in your Bibles. Corinthians was an important trading city. I've got a map up here somewhere. There it is. Uh, It was an important trading city, which you can hopefully see just about on the left-hand side of the map above the big word Achaia. Uh, Roman province of Achaia. Corinth is there on that little isthmus, which made it a great trading port. You know, you went through that little isthmus to avoid going all the way around the the tip of the Greek peninsula. And so Corinth was a major stop on the trading routes. It was an important city. Now, just to make things confusing, when it comes to these letters, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, uh, at least that we know of. And we know that because in 1 and 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, Paul talks about two other letters. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. Letters 1 and 3 are missing. We don't have them, but they're referred to. 2 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth that was written about 55 or 56 AD, so within 30 years of Jesus ascending to heaven. And it was written about a year after 1 Corinthians and maybe a year before Romans, if you want to put it chronologically in New Testament order. Now, one thing you have to know about 1 and 2 Corinthians is these these letters are both written to churches that are in trouble. 
In 1 Corinthians, there are a church who hasn't yet figured out how to live together for Jesus. And there's all sorts of sin and disunity in the church that needs addressing. When you get to the second letter, what's happened is a bunch of influencers and a bunch of tone setters have turned up in the church and are undermining Paul's ministry, saying basically that, you know, Paul is so unimpressive, so pathetic, why on earth would you want to listen to what he has to say? And so 2 Corinthians is actually about learning to see things God's way again, especially in the areas of strength and weakness. So that gives you a bit of a background of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul was probably in Macedonia when he wrote this letter. I wonder if my laser pointer will. Ah, it does work. That's great. So Macedonia is up there. And you might recognize the New Testament cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea from Acts uh, 16-ish. And then Corinth is down over there. So Paul was probably up here in Macedonia when he wrote uh, 2 Corinthians which helps to give a bit of context to the way he begins chapter 8. And chapter 8, of course, starts the second major section of the letter, just to orientate ourselves this morning. So there's an outline in the service guide which you might find useful. Uh, More useful still would be to have your Bible open at uh, this part of the... uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's just spent seven chapters defending the nature of his gospel ministry, He ends chapter 7 reaffirming that the Christians in Corinth, he sure will get back on track. And then chapter 8 begins, and it sounds like he's just taken a massive left turn. He basically says, let me tell you a story about the church in Macedonia. Now, I must say, when I hear Macedonia, I hear of the Eurovision Song Contest. Make of that what you will. The province Paul is talking about is in roughly the same area as the modern Balkan state in in Southeast Europe. I'll put it back on the map there. might be helpful. Um, Today, what was Macedonia incorporates parts of northeastern Greece as well. It included the cities, as we've said, of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, uh, places uh, uh, churches Paul wrote letters to. But the thing to know, it wasn't a major trading center the way Achaia was in the south or that Asia Minor was over to the east. It was an average province with an average economy. Um, It was used to bulk up the Roman armies, supplied a lot of manpower and labor. But it was nothing special. And it was probably experiencing its fair share of persecution if the other letters are anything to go by. That was life in Macedonia which makes the story Paul tells about them all the more special. So please follow with me from verse 1 that Phil read earlier. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Now, there is a backstory here. And the backstory is something we read about elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, the church back in Jerusalem was doing it tough. There was a great famine 
which, went, which spread over this part of the world um, from about 45 to 63 AD. And the church in Jerusalem was caught up in that. It was prophesied about back in Acts chapter 11. And churches across Achaia, where uh, Corinth was, and Macedonia, they initiated a collection, a financial collection, under Paul's direction, to send aid to their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. But if you look at your Bibles in verse 2, this need presented the Macedonian church with a test. Because if it was one thing the Macedonians didn't really have, it was money and means. But if there's one thing they did have and they had in spades, it was joy in Christ. If you just think of Paul's letter to the Philippians where he keeps talking about rejoicing. And so this need becomes a test of whether their, whether their extreme poverty or their abundant joy would win. In other words, what mattered more? How little they had materially or how much they had in Christ. And what won? Well, Paul says their joy won which combined not with their wealth, but with their extreme poverty to overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, that doesn't mean that they gave heaps. You, you just think of the widow Jesus sees at the temple back in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus calls her two small copper coins a greater gift than the large sums given by the rich people. It was a wealth of generosity not of money, and that's what matters to God. And as a result, look what happened. Verse 2, they gave even when they had needs themselves, out of their extreme poverty. Verse 3, they gave willingly at cost to themselves, more than their means would comfortably allow. Verse 4, they even begged to take part. Paul was almost ready to say, it's okay, guys, you don't have to. But they went, no, we want to. It's because they valued the opportunity to be involved in this way so much. In verse 5, it was entirely of their own prerogative. It wasn't coerced in any way. The question is, how can people in poverty be so generous? Well, I think this section gives us two answers. The first is back in verse 1. It's actually a little word which keeps popping up over these two chapters, over 8 and 9. Um, and it's the word grace. I wonder if you noticed that as we were reading it, how often the word grace keeps coming up. Grace is a very important word in the Bible. It means an undeserved gift from God. It's not earned. It's not bought. It's freely uh, given generously from God's own heart. Our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is by grace. So verse 1 says the ability of these poor Macedonians to give generously was itself a generous gift from God. The grace of God that has been given among the churches. I wonder if this suggests we might sometimes be asking God for the wrong thing when it comes to giving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because typically, I think, if we see a need or we know we should give, what's the thing we ask God for? Well, it's more to give with, isn't it? God, if I had more resources, I'd be able to give more. More time, more money, more ability. If we had more, we could give more, surely. 
But what if we asked God to give us giving instead? Oh Lord, I don't have much, but please make me a giver rather than a keeper or a taker. You know, that transfers meeting needs from being a duty to being a privilege. What if we asked God not to give us more stuff, but to give us more giving? Look finally at verse 4. We'll see this is how the Macedonians actually thought about being givers. The word favor uh, in our Bibles is also the Greek word for grace. It's the same word again. And so they were begging us earnestly for their gift of taking part in the relief of the saints, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. Uh, That book that I read, the, The Prayer From last week, Graham Bynan's Money Counts, says this, that turns our ideas of giving on their head. Giving is not primarily about what I give to God, but it's a result of what he gives to me. So that's the first reason that these Macedonians, these economically challenged Macedonians, can give so generously. It's because they know that giving itself is a precious gift from God that they don't deserve. And so they accept it and enjoy it eagerly. That's the first reason. The second reason why these disadvantaged Christians could be so generous comes from verse 5, and it's going to flow on into our next section. Have a look with me at verse 5. Paul says this, Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I think often when we think of giving, we think of, transferring resources from me to another person or another cause. The Bible here is telling us that Christians should think about giving differently. Because when we give, we're not transferring our resources from one person to another person primarily. We're actually transferring ourselves to God. It means we're more concerned with what the Lord deserves from us than what the recipient deserves from us. We're more concerned with what the Lord deserves from us, the one who loved us and gave his only son for us, that we might be forgiven and given a place at his table in his kingdom forever. We're more concerned about what he deserves from us. But it also means we are trusting him to supply what we need to be able to give. Give ourselves to the Lord. We're trusting that he will give us what we need in order to give. And finally, it means we're relying on him to make up anything we lack as we give through what our giving might cost us. Giving ourselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to others. And, you know, for reassurance that this is how it works, we don't need to go further than Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus said that the nations seek after all these things. He's talking about food and shelter and clothing and Uh, necessities of life, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this is the the second reason that the needy Christians in Thessalonica uh, and Philippi could be generous, is because they gave themselves first to God. Their giving was an expression of their devotion. Now, That might be all well and good, but why? This is our second point today. 
What could motivate such generous and costly giving towards, from the economically disadvantaged towards others' well-being? I mean, at the end of the day, things like sympathy and charity and uh, kindness and compassion and even altruism is only going to get you so far. What is motivating this sort of giving? Well, the answer is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. So please follow with me from verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. We've met Titus in other parts of the New Testament. Eventually, he ends up as a church leader on the island of Crete. Uh, In this case, he's probably carried this letter from Paul in Macedonia down to the church at Corinth. He's not just taking the letter. He's actually coming to help finish the collection, to give them a a little bit of a boost, uh, ready for when Paul gets there, passing through to collect everything on his way to Jerusalem. Excuse me. Bathing over this morning. Uh, You notice in verse 10 how the Corinthians started this project uh, a year ago. Well, Titus is coming to help them finish. Again, notice the repetition of the word grace in verse 6 and 7, and how especially this isn't a command from Paul. Nothing about this collection is based on inspiring leadership or on savvy economic management or worse, on sort of devious emotional manipulation. It's the gift of God eagerly and voluntarily undertaken so that Christians can express their genuine love for one another in the gospel. Verse 8. And you know, reading the rest of the New Testament, when we see the other parts of the New Testament where this whole collection is is mentioned, it certainly seems like the, the actual material relief was a secondary concern. What was more important was for non-Christian, non-Jewish Christians in other parts of the empire to show their love in Christ, their unity in the gospel with Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Because this was a time when the gospel could be severely hindered by disunity between Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And of course, all of this, unity, between, unity and love for Christians across cultural and ethnic divides, uh, this not law, but eager, anticip- eager participation. It's all a reflection of what Paul is talking about in verse 9, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the heir of God's kingdom, one with the Father before eternity, God's promised king and rescuer, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. 
And yet he consented to be born as a helpless human baby. Coming into the world as we do with absolutely nothing. Someone had to give him a home, give him a bed, give him food. During his ministry, he had no stable home. He was constantly harassed by people who didn't realize who he was. And then at the end, he died the death of a condemned criminal. And his last earthly possession, the purple robe that was given as a mocking gift to cover his nakedness, was gambled away by soldiers. The divine air of the universe was reduced to the depths of human poverty. Why? Look again at verse 9. For your sake. Let his words sink in for a moment if you're a Christian here today. For your sake, the Lord Jesus Christ became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Friends, Jesus spent himself for us. This means that as a consequence, we can spend ourselves for others' sake because we have nothing to lose. It's not simply an imitation of Jesus, but it's actually a result of what he spent for us to buy us a treasure that we can never, never lose far beyond anything we could imagine. In other words, at the very least, the gospel teaches us to share. Now, it's still, I think, very hard for us to get our heads up out of the bank statements and balance sheets to really grasp what the Bible is telling us here. We still tend to see uh, dollars and cents as the end when it comes to giving rather than a means to the end. And so Paul finishes this last section by tying together these related themes of readiness, of abundance, and fairness. So please have a look with me from verse 10. Paul says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So, the Corinthians, as we've said, they started the collection a year ago with you know, lots of enthusiasm, great gusto, they were keen. But something has derailed the project. Um, it was probably this minority anti-Pauline clique of malcontents, as one commentator colorfully calls them. And again, as we saw last week, you know, greed and the gospel, they, they're not friends. Always in opposition to each other. Paul has sent Titus to help. But here he reminds them that it will actually be beneficial to them to complete the collection according to what they have, not according to what they do not have. Because, you know, they, they might have been discouraged by how far they've fallen behind. 
all the time that they've lost, or maybe they had you know, a lot more resource to be able to give a year ago, and now it's not so much because these other guys have fleeced them. What are they to do? Well, Paul says it's okay because God hasn't issued them an invoice that he's waiting for payment on. He's not going to send around the debt collectors. Perhaps we might feel as though the needs around us are too great. We want to give, but we're discouraged that we don't actually give anything. This is a reminder that the giving God values comes from the heart, and it's simply giving out of what he has provided, whatever that may be. It's simply impossible to give what God hasn't given us to give in the first place. Perhaps all we need is to make a start. Because the truth is, even in God's church, some will always have more than others. Economics and demographics and history and a host of other factors will mean that God's people at different times and different places uh, will be in want and sometimes they'll be in abundance. Sometimes even within the same church. And sometimes some have a lot, others have a little, then it's flipped around and the ones who had little now have a lot and the ones who had a lot now have a little. That's the nature of things. So look at verse 14. <clears throat> Excuse me. That your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. You see how it works? It's all collective. This sort of Western individualism that we've bought into for so long doesn't really work when it comes to the way God's designed his church. And it's a good reminder to consider where we might have abundance that could be used to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've said this before, but I think in the West, lifestyle works a little bit like a gas, where it expands to fill the available income. But could it be that our abundance at the present time should supply their need, their being or someone in need? But now, of course, considering that we do live in the West, and especially because we live after the Second World War and after the Cold War, which may or may not have ended, depending on who you ask, this fairness might start sounding suspiciously like the Bible is advocating some kind of socialism or communism, some kind of redistribution of wealth so that everyone has the same. Well, I've got to say that's not quite accurate either. <clears throat> but it's not also not accurate that the notion... The notion that biblical Christianity is also pure, unadulterated, unfiltered capitalism. That's not the Bible either. Because in truth, the Bible advocates an economic principle where material resources are the results and the reward of work. So think of Jesus' words, the laborer deserves his wages in Luke 10. But equally, a model where material resources are to be generously and freely and eagerly given to meet need, as we have here. And this is the fairness that is mentioned all the way around this section. And so Paul refers then to the Old Testament experience of Israel in the wilderness, where God fed them with manna from heaven. So please follow again with me from verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much of the manna had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. I think one way of summarizing this is simply by saying that a wealthy Christian is no contradiction, 
that a starving homeless Christian is. Now, I mentioned it earlier, but this eagerness to uh, spend themselves for the sake of meeting each other's needs was a very public witness to the power and the credibility of the gospel in the early church. So besides generous hospitality, which was often practiced, this is what we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Interesting. You could have stuff that belonged to you, but if someone else needed it, well, it was theirs. Further on in Acts chapter 4. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. Sorry, I've, I've skipped over one already. There we go. Uh, Acts chapter 4, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Amazing. Early Christians were willing to reduce their property portfolios in order to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. This was all the gift of God and a response to the gospel among them. And it blew the surrounding culture away. There was a guy called Aristides, who was a Greek philosopher, who became a Christian in the early 2nd century AD. And he actually wrote a defense of Christianity, which he addressed to the emperor Hadrian. He was saying, Hadrian, you've got to take note of these guys. There's something special about them. And one of the things he pointed to was Christians' costly generosity towards one another and said, this is just so different to the culture we see out there. I want to read to you uh, a section of Aristides' apology. There's a picture of him up there. And he writes this. And he who has, he's talking about Christians, gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. So they'll actually stump up the money to make sure he can be bought out of jail. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Um, Bringing it up to the present day, I read something interesting in this little book. Uh, which talks about a radical church in Seattle that raises funds so that young first home buyers can pay cash for property rather than acquire a mortgage. This has many benefits. They even avoid this debt. They model their independence, interdependence on one another in church, and they free up all the money that would have been spent on interest payments for the sake of the gospel. 
I think it's quite a, a radical idea, but the question is for us, does this look like the church in Australia today? In fact, does this, do all these examples look like our church? You know, as, as Christianity loses more and more ground in the social, socio-political sphere, and I think we start to resemble more the first century church than the sort of bumpy years of the 20th century, this costly care for one another is going to become more critical to the face of the gospel we present to our world. It's going to become more crucial on a practical level, but also for the sake of the integrity and credibility of the gospel we claim. And, you know, echoing the situation of this letter, I was wondering, how long will it be until our wealthy city churches will be on the front lines of anti-Christian hostility and will depend on the eager but meager support of churches in the regions? We should probably start practicing. Has the gospel so taken root among us that we will joyfully and eagerly and sacrificially and deliberately give to relieve the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we share a church-wide attitude of selfless service and costly care for one another, which reflects what Jesus has done for each of us? As we said, a wealthy Christian is no contradiction. A greedy one is, and a starving, homeless, needy Christian certainly is. Let's pray that God would bless us in this gift of giving so that we may excel in this act of grace also. Let's pray. Father God, this is a big topic. Uh, It's one that really does unsettle us. But Father, help us to be so filled with an appreciation and sense of the gift we have in Christ that this becomes natural. Father, let us be wise with what you've so abundantly blessed us with. And Father, help us to be open-hearted and open-handed towards one another as you have been to us. Father, we pray this not just so that lifestyles can be fair, uh, that people can be relieved of need, but Father, so that when the world looks at us, they might see the power of the gospel at work among us. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've got a great song to.